So what are some of the newer types of insulin and recent product advancements for type 1 diabetes? Well, let's find out with Carrie Dorsey Higdon, a nurse practitioner and diabetes specialist at Marin Health Braden Diabetes Center. This is the Healing Podcast brought to you by Marin Health. I'm Bill Klaproth. Carrie, so good to talk with you. Thank you for your time. So first off, can you give us a bit of background on yourself and maybe some of your credentials? Hi there. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. I graduated from Vanderbilt University School of Nursing with a Master of Science in Nursing and started work in primary care back in 1998. But in 2005, I had the opportunity to transition into the endocrinology specialty and focus on diabetes, which is where I found my passion. So I've been working in this field ever since and look forward to many more years. Wow, that's great. You're a Vandy graduate. How about it? (laughs) All right. So, Carrie, 2021 marks the 100-year anniversary of the discovery of insulin. Can you take us back and share a bit about what treatments of type 1 diabetes were like before 1921 and how insulin has changed that? Yeah, it's a great story. You know, before insulin was discovered in 1921, people with diabetes, unfortunately, didn't live long. There wasn't much doctors could do for them. The most effective kind of treatment was to put patients on very strict diets with minimal carbohydrate intake. And at best, it could buy a few extra years, but unfortunately, it couldn't save them. And sometimes people even died of starvation just due to the harshness of the diet. When insulin came along, it actually provided them with a life-saving missing hormone in their body. And it enabled glucose to move into the body cells where it can be used as fuel and eliminated all those ravages to the body that were caused by high glucose levels and their risk of death from something called ketoacidosis. So not a good outlook if you were diagnosed with diabetes in the 20s, 30s, 40s until these advancements have been made. That's exactly right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for putting us in the Wayback Machine and giving us a glimpse of (laughs) type 1 diabetes before 1921. So then over the past 100 years, let's talk about that. What changes or improvements have been made on how we use insulin to treat diabetes? The initial insulin was extracted from dog pancreases, and later on, insulin from cattle and pigs became widespread in use, and it saved millions of lives over the years, but it wasn't perfect because people would have allergic reactions. A company called Eli Lilly was able to make the first genetically engineered synthetic human insulin. They used E. coli bacteria to produce it back in 1978. And in 1982, they began to sell the first commercially available what we call biosynthetic human insulin under the name brand of Humulin. So that's what we had for a long time. And later, um, researchers were able to develop more and more advanced formulas of insulin all the way from ultra-rapid-acting to ultra-long-acting basal insulins. And so that kind of gave us a much more physiologic approach to insulin dosing, which 
means essentially we're getting closer and closer to how the body would naturally secrete insulin and manage people's blood sugars. Yeah, that seems to be the holy grail, right, is to get it as close to what the human body produces? That's exactly right. I think that's kind of the main thrust behind our research and development right now. Right. So speaking of that, are there still advances being made at this point? Yeah, it seems like every couple of years we have more biosynthetic formulations of insulin released on the market where their onset of action and how long the insulin lasts, we call it duration of action, get more and more similar to our natural insulin and how that performs in the body of someone who doesn't have diabetes. Something else cool, too, is the production of something called biosimilars. I don't know if you've heard about that before, but they're highly similar to an original patented insulin. They're essentially a generic version of insulin developed by companies other than the original patent holder. The manufacturing is similar but not the same as the original patent holder. The subtle characteristics or differences can provide a huge discount in prescription drug costs to patients and really expand market competition, which results in patients having more affordable insulin options at the pharmacy counter. So this is a really big, important new trend that we're benefiting from already today. Yeah, well, that's good to hear that advancements are still being made. And speaking of advancements in newer types of insulin and recent product advancements, let's start with basal insulin. What is that and how does it work? So basal insulin is a long-acting, slowly absorbed insulin that gives the body a steady low level of insulin over a 24-hour or so period, depending on which kind of insulin you're using which brand or formulation. Usually it's dosing and it helps keep glucose levels stable when people are fasting or or numbing, which is essentially the overnight period while we're sleeping or maybe in between mealtimes. And we need basal insulin because at any given moment, our liver is releasing stored sugar into the bloodstream and insulin or basal insulin helps to regulate that and kind of match our body's need for insulin in that setting. So people without basal insulin can have high blood sugars even though they're not eating. Okay, so then this helps combat that. It does. It helps regulate that so when folks are on the right dose, they will have a pretty steady level of their blood glucoses while they're sleeping at night, when they first wake up in the morning, and in between their meals. It's very important. Well, there's a couple of basal insulins on the market. Can you talk about those and give us some specifics like Traceba and the Tugeo U300? We're actually fortunate. There's a lot of basal insulins on the market. Probably one of the most common is Lantus. Its generic word is Glargine. And we actually have two biosimilar products for Lantus called Basaglar and Simgly, which makes more affordable options for a lot of patients. Lantus or Glargine doesn't really have a peak, meaning it's a real steady, flat amount of insulin in our body, which lasts for about 20 to 24 hours. There's another one called Levamir. It also doesn't have a peak 
and can last anywhere between 6 to 24 hours duration. Traceba is kind of what we would call an ultra-long-acting insulin. It can have a duration of action up to about 24 hours with no peak. And Tujeo, which is a concentrated Atlantis, can last up to a duration of about 36 hours. One of the great things about Traceba is that because it's so long-acting, it showed in some studies that it can reduce low blood sugars or what we call hypoglycemia by up to 40%, and even severe overnight low glucose events can be drastically reduced. Sometimes people have difficulty with taking their long-acting insulin at the same time every day. So these ultra-long-acting formulations like Traceba or Tujeo can be more forgiving, where if people aren't taking it at the same time, if there's a significant delay or even a skip dose, there won't be as much of an impact on their blood sugars as if they were taking one of the shorter-duration formulas. Right, so it helps you stay regulated longer or more evenly, if you will. Yes, that's exactly right. I'm a good learner, Carrie. <laughs> you're, and you're a very good teacher. Oh, uh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, you, you do seem to be a good sponge. <laughs> I'm a sponge. I'm a learning sponge. Okay, so let's talk then about bolus insulin like Lumgev and Fiasp. Those are two of the newer bolus insulin products. How is that different from basal insulin. So you were just talking about basal insulins. These are bolus insulins. Tell us about those and how they're different. First of all, a bolus means a single large dose of any kind of medicine. So in the diabetes world, bolus insulin is a rapid-acting or a short-acting insulin that has a faster onset and it clears the system pretty quickly. And we use bolus insulin to prevent glucose spikes after eating foods that contain carbs and also to correct a high blood sugar down or to bring that high sugar back down to a normal or a target range. Most of the rapid-acting analog insulins, as we call them, they start working or have an onset of action in about 5 to 15 minutes. They'll peak around an hour and a half, 90 minutes, and have a duration of action somewhere between three to five hours, closer to three. And some common ones our listeners may have heard of are like Novolog, Humalog, Admalog, and Apidra. There are some older biosynthetic short-acting insulins still use, though less frequently people may have heard of Humalin or Novolin regular insulin. They have an onset of action about 30 minutes. So you can see there's a big difference between those two. They have a longer peak out at two to three hours, and they hang around for four to six hours. Now, we actually have some more ultra-rapid-acting insulins, one called Fiasp and one called Lumgev. And they actually start onset of action in two and a half to five minutes, peak at about 60 minutes, and their duration of actions about three hours, sometimes up to five. The cool thing is that they can be more forgiving with respect to meal bolus timing, meaning when someone actually takes their insulin injection before a meal. Unlike other counterparts like Novolog and Humalog, which we ideally would inject 
10 to 15 minutes before a meal, these guys can be taken closer to five minutes before or even right at mealtime and sometimes even a few minutes after starting the meal and get the same results. That's a game changer when we're busy. You know, people are busy working, kids, et cetera, and trying to be precise with insulin dosing is a challenge. Absolutely. So it sounds like these help you get regulated quicker, closer to mealtime, or even, as you said, just a bit after as well, which can be very beneficial. That's right. So less room for slip-ups and more room for better outcome. Yeah. So these advancements and newer medications really are fantastic. So let me ask you this then, for a patient who's already using insulin successfully, should they talk to their doctor about trying these new options, Carrie? That's a really good question. Patients could certainly bring it up with their healthcare provider, for example, if they're experiencing more frequent episodes of low blood sugars or hypoglycemia, they might be a great candidate to try Traceba. Or if they're challenged by their long-act basal insulin dose timing, you know, trying to get it in at the same time every day, that might be a good reason to try that insulin. Or if they really are challenged by their pre-meal bolus timing with their rapid-acting insulin, or they do that perfectly and they're still trending high after meals. Maybe one of these newer short-actings like Fiasperlumgev might be a great option for them. Yeah, it doesn't hurt to talk to your doctor and explore these options. It just makes sense. Maybe one of these would be better for you and fit your lifestyle better, right? Exactly. And sometimes healthcare providers will have samples of the newer insulins in their office, so they may be able to give someone a sample pen to try to see if they do appreciate a tangible change from switching their insulin out before they make the commitment, you know, to purchase it and file it through their insurance. Okay, Carrie, for someone who is listening to this podcast and they just learned that they may be diabetic and could benefit from insulin. How do you go about finding the right product for each patient? Gosh, that is another great question. Fortunately, there are really widely accepted protocols and recommendations for initiating insulin in folks with type 1 and actually even with type 2 that are probably too complex to go into here but are widely available to healthcare providers. Ideally, people with type 1 diabetes who are newly diagnosed after being stabilized would receive a referral to an endocrinologist. And that's a specialty that's probably better equipped to manage that more complex nature of type 1 diabetes, while people that have type 2 diabetes who require insulin are often very well managed at the primary care level. But in either circumstances, things we take into consideration are what their lifestyle is like, their access to health care, including especially medication cost coverage, as well as the clinical picture, how they were diagnosed, what led up to that, other potential health conditions that may be pertinent at the same time. So there's actually a lot to factor in here. Right. And again, having that discussion with your physician, or like you said, an endocrinologist certainly can help dial in the right medication for you, right? That's kind of the way to approach it. Start with your primary care physician first, and then an endocrinologist if it calls for that. 
Yeah, I think that's always a good roadmap. And our medical bodies, for example, the American Diabetes Association sets up clinical diabetes management guidelines that are updated annually, which is a great resource for doctors, healthcare providers, and our American Association of Clinical Endocrinology, American College of Endocrinology, these kind of formal diabetes bodies really help the broader range of more general healthcare providers with a really nice, clear roadmap based on what kind of diabetes they have, how to kind of initiate insulin therapy, which types to initiate, and how to intensify, et cetera. That could be a whole nother podcast. Sure. Absolutely. Maybe we'll do that. Let's put that on the list. I like it. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for your time. If you could wrap this up for us, any final thoughts on managing diabetes with some of these newer advancements? I guess just a final comment would be looking back just in my professional practice over 20 plus years, so much has changed for the better with respect to the insulins that are on the market and the better outcomes that we see because of it. So who are on insulin now or facing the potential addition of insulin to the regimen, just know that we have wonderful options and things continue to improve. So it's something to not have fear about. We're really getting closer and closer to insulins that work kind of according to our grand divine design, so to speak. So that's good news to take home. Yeah, that sure is. Good to end on an optimistic note for sure. Carrie, thank you so much for your time. This has really been informative and insightful. Thank you again. Oh, you're so welcome. My pleasure to be here. And once again, that's Carrie Dorsey Higdon. And to learn more about diabetes care in the Marin Braden Diabetes Center, please visit mymarinhealth.org. And if you found this podcast helpful, please share it on your social channels and check out the full podcast library for topics of interest to you. This is The Healing Podcast brought to you by Marin Health. I'm Bill Clapper. Thanks for listening.